This is John Haltzman, and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes as we give you the show from the road. I just finished a fantastic couple days in London at the Oval, culminating with the Network Forum's great group, Andrew Barman and co. What a wonderful event, and several hundred people listening to me try to make sense of the new world with a keynote, which ended that great event about what are the contours of the new era that we live in. Then I hopped on a plane having flown from Milan to London, and now I'm in Amsterdam this morning seeing a major client on exactly that topic. The contours of the new era are where it's at. And so I thought I'd divide up what that, that speech, which I think is one of my best. I'm very happy with it. It's, I've, God knows I've had time over COVID to get it right. And I've actually gone through now and divided it up, and I'm going to give a series of Around the World 20 Minutes views of it so you're going to get the speech but in sort of bite-sized portions which helps me memorize it and also helps us keep up because it's very hard to do this from the road and i have just about an hour before the cleaning people throw me out and i have to unceremoniously walk to my event so i thought i'd do this the key point here as we look at the new constellation of forces in the world the weather we're all going to live in invest in um, and have our lives in is that this is where us having a history lens really makes the difference. All political risk firms worth their salts, uh, salt do macro, do political analysis and military analysis. But I think our firm adds one other lens that is of the most use right now, which is history, looking at things from a broader historical perspective. And as Henry Ford said, history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. There are patterns to be discerned here. And if we can just figure out the context of everything, we can make sense of it. And so that's what I want to start doing today with you. Um, let me start at the end. Um, what we're saying historically is that we're entering a new era, a new age of insecurity, a new Cold War that's going to look an awful lot like the old Cold War. And yes, there are myriad differences, particularly economic, which we'll talk about as we go along. But in terms of the global constellation of forces, it's remarkably similar. And that's what we're going to focus on today. We'll get to the differences later. But in mapping it out historically, this is the pattern. And in fact, I think we're going to see the age of globalization that we're leaving, roughly the time between Gorbachev leaving the scene in 1991 and, say, now, 2022, these 30 years, as kind of an interlude between Cold Wars. There was the old U.S.-Soviet Cold War of 1947 or so to 1991, then the age of globalization that we're just ending between 1991 and 2022, and then this new Cold War characterized primarily by the Sino-American relationship, but then with the other great powers clustering beneath it. And I think that we'll look at this in much the way that now historians look at World War I, and then the interlude from 1918 to, say, 1933, if you want the rise of Hitler, or 1939, with the war in Poland, beginning World War II, as an interlude between world wars. I think globalization is going to be an interlude between cold wars. And I think that's the way to look at it. And each era, of course, has truisms that make sense within that era. And the danger for businesses and governments now is that they're going to look at the truisms of globalization, which is that economic rationality was king, that you don't need to worry about where things came some security of supply didn't matter, that, that people are motivated almost wholly by economics. Weirdly enough, uh, many bankers have this Marxist view that the driver of everything is economics, 
Although a vitally important driver, there are many others that you do have to worry about political risk because the Germans figured out it does matter where your oil comes from. And it's not the same if it comes from Norway or Russia. All these things now look different. And the truisms of the old era don't make much sense right now. And we have to go back to the earlier Cold War era to make sense of it. And there are a lot of verities that move from one to the other. But businesses and governments that can figure out the new truisms of this new Cold War, this new age of insecurity, are going to get an awful lot right. And those who don't really won't. And so that's where political risk firms can add immense value to businesses and governments right now. And so to start with, what was the world looking like before the Ukraine war? And let's remember, crises clarify, wars clarify. Um, that, that's something they do. They make clear in a bolt of lightning what's going on um, when really astute analysts have begun to see it, but everyone sees it after the war. And before the war, the Sino-American Cold War was evolving as such. At the top end, you had China and the United States vying for global dominance, particularly vying for dominance in the vital Indo-Pacific, where most of the world's risk and most of the world's reward are located. And beneath this, there were great powers that had some freedom of maneuver to either tilt toward one superpower or be neutralist and chart their own course in foreign policy. And initially... The United States was joined by three allies, the Anglosphere, the English-speaking countries, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, were lockstep with the US, Sundance to America's Butch Cassidy. Japan, long-standing ally, firmly in the American camp, increasingly frightened of China, ever closer ties to the US, and critically, India, the new kid on the block, the new superpower on the block, or great power on the block. And... India also frightened by actual fighting along the line of actual control with China in the Himalaya, increasingly sided with the U.S. So you had the Anglosphere, Japan, India, and the United States on one side, China on the other, and in the middle, oscillating uneasily between a pro-Chinese pro and independent line was Russia. And the problem for Russia is what we've called the Batman problem. The problem is that Russia would have to be Robin to China's Batman because China is so dominant, Russia couldn't hope to be the dominant partner in any sort of firm alliance there. And who wants to wear those ugly tights? And as a result, China, Russia, led by a great Russian nationalist, the Peter the Great aspiring Vladimir Putin, didn't fully throw in his weight with China because he would be Robin to China's Batman and that didn't suit his unique vision of Russia as a great power in history. So it, it oscillated between a pro-Chinese line because they both are revisionist powers that want to ruin the American-dominated order that resent American lectures, Western lectures, and Western domination, and trying to chart this independent course. And in a mirror image, the European Union was doing the same. It tilted traditionally toward the United States, but also increasingly was neutralist. The French Gaullist approach, and Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, is a Gaullist to the marrow of his bones, always dreamed and aspired to an equidistant position between superpowers. Under de Gaulle, that was the Soviets and the Americans, and under Macron, that would be China and the United States. And Germany was, in many ways, even more neutralist. The Germans have outsourced their security policy to America, but their trade policy to China and their energy policy to Russia. And as a result of all this, increasingly mercantilist, increasingly commercial-driven foreign policy, increasingly in the pockets energy-wise of Russia 
and uh, trade-wise of China, uh, the EU, because of Germany and France's lead, was charting a neutralist course with some oscillation still toward their traditional pro-American line. So you have China on the one side, Russia and the EU neutralists, and the Anglosphere, the US, Japan, and India on the other. And then Ukraine came. And there were three changes. One, the West is suddenly united. Suddenly, the EU doesn't have the option to look morally at Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping in the United States as the same. This, this European uh, dream of moral relativism, uh, also in the Cold War, there were lunatics who had this view as though any bumbling American was the equal of the murderous Stalin and Mao, a beggar's description. And in the end, that view did not prevail in Europe because it's simply not true. Or as Mark Twain would say, the Americans being morally superior to the genocidal Mao and, and, and Stalin had the added advantage of being true. And in the end, that won out. Um, suddenly, the United States and NATO don't look so boring. Suddenly, NATO isn't brain, brain dead, as Macron has said, but is fundamental. And you see this immediately as they move in, as Sweden and, Nor and uh, Finland clamor to join NATO, as Germany commits to significant defense spending after shamefully free riding off the United States for two generations. Uh, literally, the Germans have only about three days worth of ammunition in Ukraine-style fighting, and so they're going to spend 100 billion euro to begin to upgrade their shamefully neglected defenses and 2%, and also their idiotic and suicidal uh, energy policy. They're going to begin to pivot away from Russian oil and gas, do more with American shale, Qatari gas, Norwegian gas, and make up the difference over time that way. But they are moving quite considerably into the American bloc. And the West is united because of Putin making a strategic mis miscalculation as never before. The second thing that's happened is the Batman problem has been resolved. Russia is now a pariah nation in the West, can't trade its goods there. Its oligarchs are being hounded out of London. Its yachts are being impounded. The SWIFT system has been canceled and fundamental and effective sanctions have been put on it. And so over time, Russia's luxury of being neutralist is gone. Now it has to move toward China. There's no doubt it's Robin anymore. Another strategic miscalculation of Putin. But Russia is now firmly in the Chinese camp because it has literally nowhere else to go. China benefits from this by literally doing nothing and watching the apple fall from the tree. And sometimes that's the best way, much as the U.S., has done very little, but the EU has fallen into its lap. And that's those are the two first main movements. And then the third movement, much underreported on and fascinating, is India moving to a more neutralist position. A very uneasy intellectual position for the Indians, because the position is on Indo-Pacific regional matters, we are with the United States and part of the quadrilateral initiative, which is uh, Shinzo Abe's dream child of balancing against China in a NATO-like alliance with uh, Anglosphere country Australia, uh, Japan, great power Japan, uh, superpower the United States, and great power India. They're exactly who you want in. And at that level, India remains committed to this anti-Chinese, anti-expansionist alliance. But on the other hand, globally, given that, that India gets most of its weapons from Russia still, that they had close ties during the Cold War that have persisted. India doesn't want to jump fully into the Western camp and is trying to have a more neutralist position globally, even if it is pro-American regionally. Ultimately, in the words of the great Johnny Mercer, something's got to give. I simply don't think they can do that. That contradiction can't last forever. 
But that's where they are right now, and they're stubbornly hewing to that because they don't want to make a choice, and, and that's certainly understandable strategically from a Indian point of view. But India is only the poster child for a broader notion that these developing powers don't want to choose. If you look across the world at the rising developing world, what used to be called in the, called in the first Cold War, the third world, you see the same pattern over and over again. You see Brazil, soon to be led again by the left, leftist Lula, saying NATO's partly to blame for Ukraine and they're neutral. Argentina on the left, any gringo is ever following with Brazil. You see Turkey hewing to a very neutralist line. Indonesia hewing to a neutralist line. For goodness sakes, Saudi Arabia and UAE, long-standing American allies, hewing to a neutralist line over Ukraine. And so all the developing world has moved firmly into the hedging camp. They're going to wait and see. They don't want to choose between the United States and China. And Ukraine is the litmus test, the canary in the coal mine for what's going on at the moment. So you have these three movements all occurring because of the Ukraine war. The West is now united in a way it wasn't before the war. The Sino-Russian access is now firm because they've solved the Batman problem, and Russia is, unfortunately for it, Robin. And the developing world is stubbornly hewing to a position of neutralism or trying to set an independent course between the two superpowers. So what does that mean the world looks like now? On one side, you have Russia and China. And on the other side, you have the Anglosphere, the United States, Japan, the EU, with India and the developing world neutralist. The new Cold War looks very like the old Cold War. Think back in terms of constellation of forces to the first Cold War of 1947 to 1991. Who did you have? You had Russia and China for the first part of the Cold War with Russia under Stalin, Batman, and Mao playing a very odd-shaped Robin, um, and up until the advent of Khrushchev, that held very firm. So you had Russia and China on one side, as you do now. The only thing is the positions are reversed, and now China's dominant, and before Russia was. And on the other side, you have the U.S. with the Anglosphere, Japan, and the EU. Exactly the correlation of forces that brought the Americans victory in the Cold War. And strikingly, you have India leading a new non-aligned movement as it led the old non-aligned movement, you have India and the developing world hedging between the two superpowers. In effect, you have a Graham Greene novel. In essence now, the new Cold War correlation of forces looks at the great power level almost exactly like that of the old Cold War. And so as we enter this new era, this new Cold War, we see that globalization is the exception and that, in effect, the last 30 years have been an interlude between Cold Wars. And so much of the thinking of that first Cold War may indirectly, and of course it won't be direct, history rhymes, it doesn't repeat, but will be now applicable again to the new era. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we don't just have an economics first view of the world, that there are many other drivers between economics uh, beyond economics. There are military drivers, there are, there are ideological drivers, there's nationalism. Um, and all these strategic forces also now must be factored in. There are four or five major drivers. There's military, political, economic, cultural, ideological. And so to look at the world in a simplistic economics first way as sort of worked during the age of globalization doesn't make sense anymore. Secondly, security of supply. 
really matters. It does matter where you get your stuff from, as it did in the first Cold War, where Russia, in essence, was cut out of the global supply chain, and you had two independent supply chains, one behind the Iron Curtain and the larger dominant one not. Uh, we are going back to fraying the one supply chain of the U.S. and China. It won't fully go away, of course, but there'll be a lot more onshoring. There'll be a lot more regionalization. There'll be a lot more autarky. There'll be more hedging as we move to something resembling this. Third, political risk matters. In the globalized era, people assume that in the end, people were making enough money and were happy enough with the system that much as the United States and China were competitors, in the end, they'd sort out their political differences because of the primacy of the economic supply chain. As Putin has shown, this isn't true. Putin was aware there might be some economic repercussions to invading Ukraine, though I'm sure he had no idea how many, but he went ahead and did it anyway. And so we now have to look at politics and political risk in every single decision that we make, because the bet that you can buy off all problems with simple economic rationality and prosperity has been proven to be a false one. Now to a cold warrior from that first generation to people like George Smiley in a John Le Carre novel, this is obvious, this all makes sense, but that's not the world we've been living in for the last 30 years. So adapting the old Cold War truisms to the new Cold War is the challenge because if the strategic era of now is much like that of 1947 to 1991, we have an imperfect roadmap forward. Yes, the roadmap needs to be adopted, adapted. Yes, we have to look at see where it, history rhymes and doesn't repeat. But in front of us, we have that most important thing, compass points, as we chart these new uncharted waters and sail this unknown sea. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this Around the World in 20 Minutes. Uh, this came straight out of my talk yesterday to the Network Forum, a great group led by Andrew Barman that I've been working with for many years. And it was so good to see all of you face-to-face. -face. I'm a theater actor, and to be in front of a theater audience was a great thrill. And thank you for your warm ovation at the end of it. And we will keep them coming. For those of you who've enjoyed this, please do subscribe. We've doubled our subscription in just the last few months, and we're very grateful for that. And for those of you who have subscribed, please do give. We're asking the price of one of my beloved espressos, $70 a year or $7 a month for just $70 a year. We can keep them coming. When I'm back at home, the foreign policy vlog is Monday. The culture section is Tuesday. We're going to next look at albums you need to listen to before you die. The first one is Forever Changes by the inimitable Arthur Lee in Love. We're going to talk through that next time. Wednesday is the flagship, the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast that we've just completed. Thursday generally is the day of J.L. Ryder, my great friend who writes on the society. And Friday, my great friend Publius talks about the economics. We are a little local newspaper to the world. And for this, we're asking only the price of $70 a year or one of my beloved espressos a day. Thank you very much. And I'm off to my next meeting in Amsterdam before I catch my late plane home to Milan. Take care.